The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Squawkbox. Here are your headlines today. The Fed minutes point to a more aggressive tightening cycle, with governors broadly agreeing to start cutting $95 billion a month from the balance sheet and signaling that half-point rate hikes are firmly on the table. The U.S. equity markets see back-to-back losses, while the 10-year Treasury yield spikes to a three-year high. Asian stocks take a hit with the Nikkei 225 at its lowest level in almost a month. The EU appears divided on an all-out ban on Russian energy as the US imposes its most severe sanctions yet, targeting the country's financial system as well as President Putin's family. Responsible nations have to come together to hold these perpetrators accountable. And together with our allies and our partners, we're going to keep raising the economic cost and ratchet up the pain for Putin and further increase Russia's economic isolation. And French presidential candidates trade barbs over Russia with just days to go until the first ballots are cast. A key regional leader of Marine Le Pen's national rally tells CNBC the country is ready for change. After five years of Emmanuel Macron, French people need and want change. Our country has faced crises not seen in decades. We need change and that change is embodied by Marine Le Pen So, very good morning, everybody. Welcome to the program. And I guess we should start with the Federal Reserve minutes because there were a number of lines in the minutes that I think the markets uh, had to think about quite hard and readjust perhaps expectations of what the Fed is actually trying to achieve here. So, the Fed now looks likely to try to more aggressively reduce its balance sheet. Uh, minutes from the central bank's March meeting reveal governors generally agreed to begin shrinking assets by $95 billion a month, most likely starting in May for a period of at least three months. The minutes also confirming officials are open to aggressively lifting interest rates this year to help combat inflation. Many many policymakers indicating a preference towards a 50 basis point hike at upcoming meetings. The minutes also showing uncertainty stemming from the Ukraine crisis convinced the uh, federal board to limit last month's rate rise to a quarter of a percentage point. Well, the former Fed governor, Randy Krosner, telling CNBC the central bank needs to maintain its credibility on price control while acting quickly to avoid more drastic measures in future. The Fed needs to move. Uh, they've been they've been slow to to get to the party, and now that they're at the party, they really got to get uh, get moving. Because as I said, you don't want inflation expectations to get too far out of control, because that's what happened in the late 1970s, and that means that you then need to raise rates extremely high. So they need to actually raise rates more rapidly now to try to avoid something that is going to be much more of a crunch later on, and that involves both interest rate increases and uh, and uh, the uh, rundown of the balance sheet. 
And then, as I said, they just have to be aware of uh, making sure to maintain market functioning because we certainly will see more disruptions, whether it's like what we saw in the nickel market and the London Metals Exchange, uh, like what you know potentially what we saw um, a few years ago with the, the Treasury securities markets. They'll be aware of that, but they do need to bring it down. A lot of fresh warning signs in those minutes uh, depicting a more hawkish Fed. And don't forget, we've had that message already from Lael Brainard that has seen stocks reverse and yields march higher. A same trend continuing yesterday. And particularly, if you think about the Nasdaq, the pullback 2.2%. Investors, again, just are taking stock of some of those technology exposures and given the higher interest rate environment that is now predicted. And if you consider how far we're now pulling off those uh, 52-week highs on the Nasdaq, about 14%. So we are in territory where there's still a lot of pain across the board and key sectors from tech to uh, the communication services sector, which houses uh, a lot of those big tech names, all down roughly 10%. So still, we are seeing uh, the market just reposition around these big names. Worth noting, FANG stocks in particular, as we talk about the biggest, uh, have been travelling south over the course of the week, but over the trade yesterday, fell more aggressively than the market, down 3.8%. I want to take you to Treasuries. I mentioned the March higher in yields, and we saw that yesterday on the back of the Fed minutes, 2.66, where we got to on that 10-year yield. We've drifted off uh, a little bit to 2.58 uh, percent this morning, so roughly about eight basis points lower than that high water mark that we've seen in the last 24 hours. But it's also been uh, an interesting market where we've seen a little bit of strengthening now in this uh, yield curve because we had an inversion between the two and the 10 and a very flat trade. And now you can see with the escalation at the 10 year, it's put a little bit more distance between the short and the longer end. When it comes to the five and the 30, we've still been looking at inversion on these two trades. And that remains the case this morning with a full basis point roughly uh, slide on this 30-year versus the five-year. So we still have parts of the yield curve inverted. And again, as we talk about inversion, it does potentially flag up the prospect of recession down the track. I want to take you to Asian market. The handover, as you can see, has been weaker from Wall Street and markets across the region picking up on this. Uh, Japanese stocks travelling south by 1.6%. If you take a look at the trading year to date, you can see potentially there's been a rollover from the high levels late in March as this market seems to be now sliding 400 plus points. And again, technology names. Uh, we've seen this uh, playbook before. When those tech names are out of favour, it does impact a couple of these key markets across the region, in particular Japan and Hong Kong. And you can see the Hang Seng all also traveling south by about one and a quarter percent in contrast to slightly smaller losses across in China and Australia as we talk about commodities. I want to take you to the European close yesterday and this is how we ended up the trade. You can see outsized force for some of these markets, 2.2 percent down for the French market in the realm, but not quite above that 2% slide, was the DAX in Germany. So we have been pondering as to whether we've got a bit more election risk coming into French stocks this week, given that we are seeing the far right Marine Le Pen rise in the polls. So that market down, but you can see there was a 2% fall for Italian stocks too. IBEX down 1.6 and the SMI off 0.4%. So investors are very much concerned about some areas of the market where they've been bidding up again in recent weeks. And we've seen some resilience in European in stocks and we'd also seen resilience in tech names it seems some of this has now faded jeff karen thank you very much indeed for that and fascinating what the markets are doing at the moment as we look at the outcome of these minutes let's bring in simon harvey head of fx analysis at monex europe simon is this is this finally a recognition from the fed that it is behind the curve and if so how um, how fixed do we think this path is towards QT and uh, something like two, 
2.4% on the terminal rate? Well, good morning. I think um, it's not just the Federal Reserve that has been forced into recognising that they're that they're behind the curve. Um, and, and if anything, the Federal Reserve are the most active in acknowledging this and, and stating actually we're going to get aggressively uh, back up towards the neutral range. So uh, as things stand, I think the, the, the meeting minutes highlight this as well. Um, the, the amount in which they're withdrawing from the, from the Treasury market isn't necessarily too aggressive uh, with relation to, to expectations. I think it's around uh, mid, middle, middle ground from, from where we're looking. Um, but when, when it comes to rates, the next two meetings are pretty much locked in as, as things stand, unless we see a, a massive disinflationary shock again in, in, in global commodity markets. I think we're talking two back-to-back 50 basis point hikes. The, the, the next meeting pretty much accounted for, given uh, recent Fed commentary. So we're going to start looking at the meeting after that. After these 250 basis point hikes, the big question for the Federal Reserve, is that enough to anchor inflation expectations such that their path to um, to, to, to neutral territory is roughly smooth sailing with 25 basis point increments, or have we got that further risk of de-anchoring? And if that is the case, then all of a sudden we're talking about a reassessment in the higher, uh, higher terminal rate. Well, let me ask you then how much of this is actually baked into the market at the moment, because uh, every every time we get a uh, statement from the Fed, um, market participants turn around and say, oh, it's already in the price. It's already in the price. But uh, there did seem to be a little bit of surprise by just how determined the Fed seems to start running off this nine trillion dollar balance sheet. Yeah, I, th- I think the biggest surprise wasn't necessarily from the meeting minutes. It was actually from Brainard's comments. Now, for me, that was actually quite interesting that the fact that she came up with it quite explicitly the day before the market was positioned and waiting for the news on on quantitative tightening and, and, and the balance sheet. So there is still some uh, some some kind of reluctance there from markets to really price in the aggressive withdrawal of policy from the Federal Reserve. And that was shown by the adjustments in the yield curve uh, on, on Tuesday and then again on, on Wednesday. But I, I don't necessarily think at the moment that markets have got this completely right. And I, and I think it's also owing to the fact that we haven't really been for a shock like this um, that, that's as large for, for quite some time. So you're seeing markets that are quite quite reluctant to, to, to really price in the fact that the Federal Reserve is going to have to put the, the, the accelerator to the floor um, and really press ahead with, with tightening. And again, because we're seeing signs of recession kind of a caution let's say, as opposed to recession indicators in the yield curve, there is this reluctance by markets to say, actually, even if the Federal Reserve do go aggressive with tightening policy to bring inflation down in the near term, are economic conditions at the moment that uh, that, that soft that it will actually tip the global economy and the US economy into, into recession? And I think that's the part that markets aren't necessarily too, too comfortable with. And it's also this black box We've got a historically tight labour market. We've got inflation that consistently shoots above target and is, it continues to be pressured to sit above target. The pressures are now manifesting domestically, so they're broadening. And is that going to have spillover effects? Are we talking about the Federal Reserve that is going to have to look further down the line at the cost of growth and start and continue to increase interest rates uh, just to get inflation back down to their target? And I think that's the big question that market participants are asking themselves at the moment. Are we having a readjustment in that terminal rate? And to what extent will that come at the consequence of growth? 
Simon, I'm hearing you. If we'd had this conversation a few years back and said, you know, at some point in, in five years' time, the Fed will be hiking by 50 basis points back to back and we'll have a much steeper runoff in QT, I think a lot of people would have just uh, sat back and looked incredibly shocked. But here we are. And the market looks like it's a little bit concerned, but we're not seeing a, a tantrum, a, like a taper tantrum that we've seen in the past. Is there potential for that? Because we're not just talking about a taper, but bigger rate hikes than we've seen in many, many years. Yes, I think there is still a potential that we see further volatility in, in global bond markets as a whole. Um, I don't necessarily see something reminiscent of, of the taper tantrum per se. Um, and this is largely because this isn't the first time the Federal Reserve has gone through quantitative tightening. They explicitly outlined in their meeting minutes um, that they are they are learning from the previous cycle. They are learning with the withdrawal of liquidity and the impact that has in money markets. Um, going forward and and they've put certain programs in place including the standing repo facility now although that was highlighted that it's not necessarily there to be used and as a as a backstop it's still another another facility that is there as as a backstop basically um and they have learned the lessons of the past i think this will be a lot smoother for bond markets the big problem now isn't necessarily withdrawal of liquidity it's actually how they're going to price in this inflation risk premium um, and that's the big problem that bond markets at the moment are having to, to jostle with um when it when it comes to other monetary policy i, I mean you said if we went back a few months ago and, and, and said that the Fed would be acting so aggressively as, as it is now, I mean, we also wouldn't be sat there going, I think there's going to be a war in Eastern Europe and oil will be above $100 a barrel. Um, and, and we have to adjust to these conditions, hence the market price action is adjusted as aggressively. Um, I, I, I'm quite hesitant to say that actually in six months time, we're going to start talking about a terminal interest rate of, of around three to three and a half percent from the Federal Reserve. I think it's a case of let's take things as they come. Let's take the next mm. few months as they come. It's already locked in for markets. We're talking the Fed's tightening regardless. It's a case of maybe 75 basis points, more likely 100 basis points in the next right. two meetings. The question is, what are we doing in the second half of the year? You could certainly see the caution from the, the Fed board members around uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That that was one of the reasons they held back on that 50 basis points. But can I just ask you quickly about FX and what we can expect from the dollar? Because we've seen a 7% gain in the dollar index last year, 4% this year. And uh, a number of analysts think that there's further move, uh, moves higher ahead for the greenback. What do you think? Yeah, we are well hesitant. Uh, obviously, there is, there is further further legs for, for the dollar in this kind of market. But when we're looking at um, fixed income pricing, it's difficult to suggest that actually we're going to see much more kind of uh, pushed in until the second half of the year, as I just said, that we're, what we're going to see is that inflation expectations don't come down. We're starting to see uh, that the, the labor market generates a lot more inflation pressures there. And then all of a sudden, we're actually going to have to reassess the terminal rates. I think at the moment, without a reassessment of, of, of the terminal rates and of the back end of the Fed's uh, hiking path, I'm, I'm really hesitant to see how markets can, can price in too much more. The question is, can other G10 central banks keep up with the Fed then? And then what does that mean for the broad dollar? Um, I also think FX markets are quite hesitant of this too. So when we're looking at money market pricing across different G10, uh, G10 economies, I think FX markets are pretty much disconnected to a large extent with the idea that the Bank of Canada is going to completely keep up with the Federal Reserve given financial uh, stability considerations. I think they're looking at euro dollar and, and the current pricing there. It, it doesn't really necessarily match up. 
So I think what we're seeing here is that the Federal Reserve is the most likely to match current market pricing. Um, if it exceeds it, which is quite unlikely, we could get some, some further upside on the dollar. But I don't necessarily think that under delivery by other G10 central banks will necessarily lead to um, further weakness in these currencies and, and, and more ground for the, for the broad dollar against the G10. Got it. Uh, Simon, thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate the time. Simon Harvey with us, head of FX analysis at Monex Europe. We have an exciting morning ahead. Uh, plenty of arrivals coming away soon. Uh, NATO foreign ministers continue their two-day meeting. We're going to go live to Brussels for the latest. Stay tuned. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music and Google Podcasts. We are taking some live pictures now from Brussels. We are waiting for some key arrivals at NATO headquarters and we are expecting to hear a conversation from the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg speaking to, to waiting media, but also the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Dmitry Kuleba expected to be with him. So it has been a fairly significant week as you think about to those images we saw from Butcher, the allegations of war crimes have been committed, mass graves. So we are waiting to see what the international response is as foreign ministers to send on NATO today for further discussions. Russia is teetering on the edge of default with interest payment on its dollar-denominated sovereign debt still due following Monday's initial deadline. This after the US banned Russia from accessing its US-held dollars, saying it must choose between eating into reserves held elsewhere or concede defaulting. Russia had said it can service its debt in rubles while its dollar reserves remain frozen. The US has imposed sweeping new sanctions against Russia, including restrictions on its largest lenders and a blanket ban on American investments into the country. The measures come in response to apparent war crimes committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. The new measures fully cut off Russia's biggest financial institution, Sparebank, and its largest private lender, Alpha Bank. However, energy-related transactions remain exempt. U.S. sanctions will also target Putin's inner circle, including his two adult daughters and his closest political allies, such as former President Dmitry Medvedev and Prime Minister Mikhail Mishustin. Jeff. Well, announcing the latest round of sanctions, U.S. President Joe Biden said Russia would find itself cut off from access to key technologies and face stifling growth for years to come. Steps we've already taken are predicted to shrink Russia's gross domestic product by double digits this year alone. Just in one year, our sanctions are likely to wipe out the last 15 years of Russia's economic gains. And because we've cut Russia off from importing technologies like semiconductors and encryption security and critical components of quantum technology that they need to compete in the 21st century, we're going to stifle Russia's ability and its economy to grow for years to come. We have eyes on Jens Stoltenberg now, the NATO Secretary General, just walking into NATO headquarters this morning. We've got some live vision to show you. And also at his side, we're expecting Dmitry Kaleba, the Foreign Minister 
of Ukraine. You can see just popping through the front doors there as they move towards uh, waiting cameras and microphones ready to uh, have a conversation at this point about uh, some of the latest developments this week. So let's uh, just see uh, which direction they're heading. Uh, you can see uh, the uh, waiting media standing by and also conversations to, to welcome the first of the crop of foreign ministers. But, we, you know, we mentioned the developments. What a week, as we've seen these very grim images from Butcher that there have been atrocities committed, allegations of war crimes, and the international community called on to investigate what's happened on the ground. The Russians have pulled, uh, pushed back, saying that this is staged, but, of course, uh, the images are incredibly grim and uh, the international community wanted answers along with Ukraine. So the question is whether we see stepped up action here from foreign ministers. We've already seen it from the finance ministers in terms of sanctions, the, the fifth wave of package that's been unveiled by the Europeans, but also stepped up sanctions too from the Americans. So the big question is uh, what uh, happens on the strategy front here, if anything changes and whether some fresh lines have been crossed that makes a difference, Jeff. Yeah, I think there are a number of issues on the table here, aren't there? Clearly, the world has reacted very negatively and very strongly to these awful scenes, and that is appropriate. But what comes next? The problem is, Karen, that we still see political dithering at the EU level, and maybe we'll talk to Sylvia about that a little later on as she's been tracking those meetings of EU ministers. Um, it, it was very clear yesterday that there is some serious disagreement here on the question of a full imposition of suspension of Russian oil, gas and coal imports. There may be progress on coal, but clearly there is no unity at this stage on oil, which probably means we are a very long way away from movement on gas at this stage. And of course, we've, we've just seen Viktor Orban uh, from Hungary apparently suggesting that he is willing to pay rubles to continue to get his gas. And that would be somewhat at odds with the uh, broader message that we've seen from the heartland of the EU Brussels that no, we don't think it is appropriate to answer President Putin's call to pay in rubles. We will continue to pay our gas contracts in euros or in dollars. So at this stage, there are a number of um, unclosed loops, it seems to me, Karen, that uh, Mr. Kaleba will be hoping his presence at the NATO headquarters will help close. And of course, uh, President Zelensky himself is asking for more, more sanctions and more military hardware and equipment to continue the fight. Just picking up on those comments, Jeff, uh, about Hungary. I mean, there's been unity across Europe so far. So that uh, move yesterday by the Hungarians was a little bit disappointing, I think. But now you can see that the foreign minister of Ukraine, Dmitry Kaleba, is walking into NATO and he is accompanied there by Jens Stoltenberg, has been standing ready to welcome him. It is, of course, as we mentioned, a very big week around these war crime allegations and uh, let's just listen into the conversation on the ground. Welcome to NATO. It's always a great pleasure to welcome you here and let me start by expressing how much we admire your courage, your leadership, uh, you personally but also the government of Ukraine, the people of Ukraine and of course the bravery and the courage of Ukrainian armed forces. What you do every day standing up against uh, the Russian aggression is something that inspires uh, the whole world. And as you know, NATO allies have provided support uh, for Ukraine for many years, uh, trained uh, tens of thousands of Ukrainian troops, and uh, 
now allies uh, are providing equipment support to you to uphold your right for self-defense a right which is enshrined in the UN Charter and uh, it is an urgent need to further support Ukraine and uh, at our meeting later on with the NATO uh, foreign ministers I'm certain that we will address the need for uh, more air defense systems, uh, anti-tank weapons, uh, lighter but also heavier uh, weapons and many different types of support to uh, Ukraine. Um, NATO also has the responsibility to of course protect and defend uh, all allies. So we have since the invasion of Ukraine stepped our military presence in the eastern part of the uh, alliance and uh, we are making sure that there is no room for misunderstanding, miscalculation in Moscow about our readiness to protect and defend uh, all allies. You being here uh, provides us with uh, a very good opportunity to sit down with you, to uh, listen to your assessments, your analysis, and uh, together uh, discuss the way forward how we can further support Ukraine. So, uh, there, uh, Dimitro, uh, please uh, welcome. It's good to have you here. Good morning. Thank you, Jens, for welcoming me. Uh, I came to Brussels to participate in the NATO ministerial and to hold bilateral meetings with allies. My agenda is very simple. It has only three items on it. It's weapons, weapons and weapons. We are confident that the best way to help Ukraine now is to provide it with all necessary to contain Putin and to defeat Russian army in Ukraine, in the territory of Ukraine, so that the war does not spill over further. In the recent month, in the recent weeks, Ukrainian army and the entire Ukrainian nation has demonstrated that we know how to fight, we know how to win, but without sustainable and sufficient supplies of all weapons requested by Ukraine, these wins will be accompanied with enormous sacrifices. The more weapons we get, and the sooner they arrive in Ukraine, the more human lives will be saved, the more cities and villages will not be destructed, and there will be no more butchers. This is my message to the Allies, it's very simple. And uh, I call on all Allies to put aside their hesitations, their reluctance, to uh, provide Ukraine with everything it needs, because as weird as it may sound, but today weapons serve the purpose of peace. Thank you. Secretary-General, are you ready or are allies ready to send more offensive weapons to Ukraine? And one question to the minister. Uh, do you think that Germany is doing enough? Allies are sending many different types of uh, weapons and uh, I think also we need to realize that uh, allies have supported uh, Ukraine for many years and these weapons, uh, the support we have provided is proving its uh, importance on the battleground every day. We can see all the uh, Russian armor that has been destroyed. We have seen Russian planes being shot down. And of course, this is first and foremost because of the bravery, the commitment uh, and the courage of the Ukrainian armed forces. But the uh, equipment that has been uh, uh, supplied is of course also of vital importance. I uh, have urged allies uh, uh, to provide further support of many different types of uh, systems. Uh, 
both light weapons but also heavier uh, weapons. Uh, it is as uh, uh, Foreign Minister Koleba uh, states, Ukraine needs weapons uh, to defend uh, uh, its own country. And this is actually uh, defensive, self-defense, also of course with uh, advanced uh, weapon systems. So uh, I expect this to be one important issue at the meeting uh, today. When it comes to Ukraine, there should be no such difference as between defensive weapons and offensive weapons. Because every weapon used in the territory of Ukraine by the Ukrainian army against a foreign aggressor is defensive by definition. So this distinction between uh, defensive and offensive doesn't make any sense when it comes to the situation in my country. And those countries who are saying we will provide uh, Ukraine with defensive weapons, but we are not in a position to provide them with offensive weapons, they are hypocritical. This is simply unfair, unjustified approach. Uh, Germany, as you perfectly know, has made a, a revolutionary step in changing its position from, uh, from uh, uh, not agreeing to supply any weapons at all to allowing certain supplies and providing Ukraine in particular with anti-tank uh, weapons. However, it's, uh, it's clear that uh, Germany can do more given its reserves, reserves and capacity. And we are working with the German government on, uh, on providing us with additional uh, weapons. The issue that concerns me the most is the length of procedures and decision-making in Berlin. Because while Berlin has time, Kiev doesn't. Well, I hope they will be applied in full. This is definitely a step forward. Uh, a week ago, the sanctions proposals were much weaker, to say the least. We were very unhappy about it. We were working with, with, with partners uh, in G7 and in the European Union to ensure that sanction pressure is stepped up. Uh, we succeeded, but I cannot say that we succeeded 100%. Uh, we will continue to insist on full oil and gas embargo uh, for Russia, on de-swifting all Russian banks, on uh, making sure that all ports are closed for Russian vessels and Russian goods with the uh, minimal number of exemptions from it based on humanitarian grounds. And uh, frankly speaking, I, uh, I hope we will never face a situation again when to step up the sanctions pressure you need, we need uh, atrocities like at Bucha to be <coughs> revealed and to impress and to shock uh, other partners to the extent that they sit down and say, okay, fine, we will in introduce new sanctions. I don't believe that Ukrainians have to pay with their lives, health and sufferings for the, p for the political will of partners to impose sanctions. Philip Lake from Norwegian Broadcasting. Uh, Minister... What kind of weapons exactly do you need? Is it planes, long-ranging missiles? What exactly are you asking for? Planes, shore-to-vessel missiles, personnel uh, armored vehicles, heavy air defense systems. 
Foreign Minister, if I could ask you a few questions from the BBC. You say weapons, weapons, weapons are your priorities today. For you, on a personal note, how difficult will it be when some of the NATO allies tell you that they can't give you some weapons because they don't want to plunge the West into a, a wider war with Russia? And just a word on the support Britain is giving your country. And Secretary General, can you just remind us what has changed in the last few days in light of the horrors we've seen? And do you think partners in NATO, their minds will be changed today from what you hear from the Minister? Yes, there are two ways of approaching the issue of weapons supplies. The first one is when you do not want to supply anything, you come up with the argument, we don't have to do it because it will pull us or NATO as a whole into the war. The second approach is completely different. This is line of thinking is completely different. We will provide Ukraine with all necessary weapons so that we, neither we nor NATO as a whole, will have to fight in this war because Ukrainians will do it for us. I think the deal that Ukraine is offering is fair. You give us weapons, we sacrifice our lives, and the war is contained in Ukraine. This is it. Uh, the United Kingdom has been uh, at the forefront of providing Ukraine with all necessary assistance, and we deeply appreciate uh, that help. I think fundamentally what we have seen over the last days is the brutality of this uh, war, and that has just highlighted the importance of support to Ukraine. And therefore, I think it is important that we have Minister Koleba here uh, today to meet all NATO allies and to discuss uh, how we can further support uh, Ukraine. Uh, NATO allies are providing many different types of weapons, also heavier systems, advanced systems, and also systems that can shoot down planes and, uh, and of course, attack uh, uh, Russian uh, armor. And it is uh, exactly as uh, Minister Koleba said that, uh, you know, Ukraine is fighting in the defensive war. So this distinction between offensive and uh, defensive weapons uh, doesn't actually have any real meaning in a defensive war as Ukraine is uh, fighting. Um, uh, what we also have seen is, of course, that uh, um, uh, we need both the, uh, the, the support with weapons, but also to step up sanctions. And therefore, I also welcome the fact that NATO allies are now in the process of, uh, of stepping up further sanctions uh, on uh, Russia. NATO provides support to Ukraine, but NATO is not sending troops uh, to uh, be on the ground. Uh, and uh, and uh, we also have a responsibility to prevent this uh, conflict from escalating beyond Ukraine and uh, become even more deadly, uh, even more dangerous and destructive. So uh, we are providing support, but at the same time, working hard to prevent escalation of the conflict. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.